Perspectives YYC is part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. This episode of Perspectives YYC is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to your community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This episode's guest is Babur Ilchi. I met Babur when developing my magazine, and his calm demeanor and structural photography really connected with me. A few weeks ago, we discussed recording a podcast together, and in that preparation, I learned that he is eager. I apologize for the pronunciation. I had thought of him as a photographer, but he's more of an activist looking to get information of the suppression of his people in China. So naturally, our conversation turned that way. I don't profess to know much about any geopolitical situation, but I have learned that his home country is in the midst of an annexation by China, a situation he terms a genocide. I think that historically any colonial activity in any part of the world folds into this broad categorization. The very nature of colonial activity being that an oppressing power believes they have a right to something, be it a people, a resource, or even an ideology. Conversations, civil, conversations are key in getting information out and in the public eye. And in this spirit, I present my conversation with Babu Ilchi, podcaster, photographer, eager. What's your, uh, what's your real life job? Uh, so I'm a digital marketing specialist. I work at the Students Union at the University of Calgary. Marketing is my kind of day-to-day stuff. All right. So before we really get into it, what, uh, I don't know. What do you feel like talking about? <laughs> that's a that's a really good question. You know, normally I'm not on this side of the uh, the podcast or the interview or anything. Yeah. So it's a little weird for me to think about what I want to talk about because usually mm. it's uh, the guest and then they have some sort of specialty or some reason why I want to interview them and that's what we end up talking about. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll my question to you is what do you want to talk about with me? Oh, well. Everything I do, I don't know if you've guessed, is uh, super informal <laughs> and uh, poorly planned. So, so uh, how do I pronounce? Is is it? Uh, well, first of all, how do I pronounce your name? It's Babur Ilchi. Ilchi. Uh, Babur Ilchi. And then, um, if we dive into the political stuff, how do I pronounce? Is it Uyghur correctly? Uh, so, the correct way, or the way that. Uyghurs say it is Uyghur, but not a lot of people are able to say uh, the the more guttural gh sound. So mm. the Western pronunciation of it is Uyghur. O- Uyghur? Yeah, Uyghur, which is Uyghur. which is like Uyghur. the proper way to say it, and then the Western way of saying it is uh, Uyghur. 
Uyghur or Uyghur. Okay. Yeah. No. Well, uh, well, no matter what, I'll fuck it up. So uh, <laughs> just be prepared and uh, feel free, feel free to make fun of me. It's fine. Sure. Uh, ignorance is my bliss. So why don't we start with uh, this? Uh, what's the most beautiful sight you've seen? Really good question. Really good question. And I always have a hard time with these questions because I always immediately flash to maybe three, four, five different things that I would consider in that in that range, and I can never narrow it down. Shoot, I, I honestly I can't I can't really think of one. You know, I can't think of like a specific sight that I've seen that was so staggering that it brought me to my knees and made me weep. <laughs> I, I, I can't think of it. Well, that's, that's you grandia. What is it? Uh, grandizing? grandizing. That's, uh, you're yeah, writing a story yeah. around it. Well, I don't know. Is there a place that you've ever walked into where, um, you had to pause for a moment or, uh, you know, I mean, you're a photographer too. So, um, that's true. I you, guess I am a photographer. I mean, I think um, that's how we met, but we can talk about that in a second. <laughs> uh, well, okay. I guess more recently, um, I went to Turkey, Istanbul, and for the first time, I got to visit the Hagia Sophia or the Hagia Sophia, uh, which is, it was a big cathedral uh, that was built. And then when the Ottoman Empire took over, Istanbul, then Constantinople, they converted it to a mosque uh, and then it turned into a museum in modern day Turkey. And now it is a mosque again, but that's a different story. When I, even though they were doing construction uh, and there were a lot of scaffolding and um, construction materials in the area, when we went in, I was genuinely awestruck. Um, Taking a look, you can really see that blend between the uh, Christian and Islamic faith on the walls, I mean, there's the the paintings of um, angels and very Christian motifs in on the walls. And then at the same time, you just look, you turn your head 90 degrees or you just turn around and you see um, these Islamic calligraphy panels. And these are the largest Islamic calligraphy panels in the world, if I'm not mistaken. And they just hang off of the corners of this, of this, um, of the Hagia Sophia and it's just staggering and you imagine what it would have been like to have seen it in its in its heyday when it was first built when it was the status symbol of Istanbul of Constantinople that everyone saw everyone would want to be inside of to pray and it's just it's some beautiful beautiful artwork and the the dynamic between the Christian motifs and the Islamic motifs and just the the history of the building was something amazing. I just watched this uh, video on the concept of a home and how um, it's not necessarily one that's manicured, but one that's an amalgam and a grounding source for a person's personality. I mean, the, the, uh, the context of the video was about you know a person's home but did they start off referencing uh places of worship uh, in that video particularly sort of grecian roman uh, temples um, but it is interesting to think about both um the yeah i guess sophia's sort of uh, being an amalgam of different warring empires and uh, you know winning uh, biases 
but they didn't destroy each other, which I think is becoming more and more rare with cultural warfare today. Um, and then I think a lot of people would be surprised at not just the scale of some of these religious buildings in Europe, but the context that there were less than a quarter of the number of people <laughs> around at that time. Uh, so how much larger it must have seemed. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't even comprehend sometimes thinking about, uh, like even a house. I mean, if you have someone raised in the 1930s walk into what's considered a starter home today, they'd probably uh, wipe their brow because, uh, you know, the scale of things changes so quickly. But uh. Yeah, it's it's become dramatically bigger. I mean, I think the average home in the 1950s was 800 square feet, maybe two bedrooms. And now you look at it, the starter home now is 1,800 square feet, three bedrooms, finished basement, double attached garage. Uh, it's really interesting to see. I remember when we were young, a friend of ours, uh, the parents, like I think the dad at the time was a dentist. And so when they built a larger house, uh, my family went to visit and we were just agape that everybody had their own washroom. I mean, that was that was un, unfathomable. And now I think if you don't have an adjoining washroom to a bedroom, people scoff at a st- idea of a starter. <laughs> no, no, I'm just being a dick now. But I, no, I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Well, yeah, we, I feel like we've all certainly become accustomed to a certain level of privacy and space that wasn't afforded to people before. You know, it's, um, it, it is nice. I would say that we are lucky to be able to afford that kind of personal privacy uh, that other people didn't have. But at the same time, you wonder what its effects are on a social social animal that depends on that kind of sharing, cooperation, teamwork. Yeah, just to be that guy, I would posit that we can see the effects of that type of culture south of the border right now. But that's too judgmental, so I'll leave that as that is. How would you say, can you, and how would you summarize your life in one sentence? Oh boy. <laughs> Jeez. Um, and while I think on this, I'll just, I'll tell you, I actually did end up taking a photo at the Hagia Sophia oh. where you can kind of see the, the partition between the Christian and the Islamic motifs in the building. Oh, cool. I mean, I, I'll, I, can, I can send that to you later if you want to check that out. Yeah. I, the thing about, I uh, like about your photography, I love about your photography is, uh, you know, it's, it's architect. I think it has an architectural sort of structure to it, and uh, and a great sort of uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is width tone. So I'd be very interested to see how you saw or how your camera, if we want to get into some aesthetic uh, philosophy, how your camera saw um, that moment for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, post that shit. I think everybody should should see it. But uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, this is a unfair question, but. Uh, yeah, one sentence, Babur. Mm, okay, one sentence. Um, um, I, I guess one sentence is still trying to figure out what I'm doing. That's probably my sentence. I, uh, as like a, as as the best way to put what I'm doing, you know, it's uh, I'm still trying to figure figure it all out. I definitely don't have all the answers, and uh, I would say that. So far, life has just been a big journey of learning. Yeah, it's great. I think, uh, yeah, the root of existential thinking, which is, uh, I don't think there is an answer. 
which makes, uh, in my opinion, life worth living. Uh, if if you don't get upset about it. <laughs> uh, which is easy to Okay, last one. If you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? Uh, at this point, I have a I have a pretty strong single-minded message, which is just be aware of what's happening to the Oilers. Um, I, like that is probably one of the uh, biggest biggest issues to me right now as a single issue thing. And I'm sure there are more enlightened, bigger things to say. If I had the ear of almost 8 billion people, maybe I would change my tune. But as of right now, this is the the biggest thing for me is that not I feel like not enough people know about it and not enough people are doing something. Yeah, the, I don't know, the modern world and the concept with the younger folks of the word woke, it's a fascinating sometimes hypocritical thing. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to internalize conflicts in a meaningful way. I, lots of people post black squares or, uh, you know, change their avatars. But, uh, when you take the veneer, I think that North American people grow up with, uh, like the veil. Um, I think most of us just want to put on a couple other layers of blinders. The world is not, it's not a nice place, but, um, well, no, I, I mean, I agree. It's not a nice place. I would, I have conflicted thoughts about the whole idea of performative activism, doing things just because other people can see you and the, the division of your attention and your resources to all these different situations. In an ideal world, you wouldn't have to pick and choose your battles because there wouldn't be so many problems. And I, I recognize that not everyone can focus on everything at the same time. You got to pick and choose, but I find it a little—I find it a little frustrating when um, you all have a similar goal in the long term, which is making sure people are safe, healthy, and prosperous. And somehow it's the minutiae, the um, the the nitpicking that somehow makes you seem so different from other people. I don't know if that made sense. It, no, it does. It, uh, I'm, it does make sense. I, I think, you know, the, the rhetoric, the use of the word freedom and democracy has um, shifted. And it means, I think, currently a sense of entitlement. And I, I think there's an idealism in the way you're painting this that human beings ought to have a common goal of uh, decency and um, restraint, uh, but cynically, I don't think history demonstrates that that's true. I think that there are small cells, family, familiar clans, things where that absolutely does, you know, start. Uh, but from what I have done, some light reading on sociology, I, I, I just, I think that uh, the critical point where we care about each other is such a small place, like 70 or 80 people, um, that to me, it's not a big surprise that, uh, that there's this, you know, yeah, you're, there's that number. I don't remember the name of it, uh, but it's that theory that human beings can only hold about 150 meaningful connections um, be, because that is kind of the the golden number of how many people we would normally interact with. And I think that's why we've invented so many tools for social connection so that we can expand, artificially expand our network of caring. And I I think that there are good things and bad things associated with that. And one of the good things is people people really do care about what's happening around the world. 
um, even if they're not doing much about it, people, people see it, people care, um, but they become desensitized. And on the other hand, uh, social media, the ability to connect. I know everybody rags on social media, but it really is such a interesting tool that's been used for evil to, to polarize people as opposed to uh, bringing them together like the intended goal was. This is sort of the theme of my uh, photography podcast. So we'll discuss again where, where this will appear. Maybe I'll do a double episode and we'll just put this on both. But uh, I think there's a relationship uh, with photography and media and politicization of those two, uh, two, the sort of, in my opinion, hollowed out culture that we find ourselves in. And, uh, you know, just like you brought up, I think things like uh, technology, social media, um, I mean, the fact that we're recording this on a web browser instead of having to kind of book and sit in a uh, recording studio, uh, if that was even a technology that existed uh, and was accessible even 20 years ago. I, mean, I actually don't think it was, but, you know, there can be impactful manifestations of all this stuff. But I think, um, I mean, I don't anymore ascribe, subscribe to this sort of Illuminati stuff. I don't think there's an ill intent on a broader scale. I just think that there's too much ego and um, fear and selfishness uh, in seats of power. Um, and I, I can't even say that I wouldn't go that way if I had that much power. Honestly, like if someone made me prime minister, I, I wouldn't be able to handle I'm not smart or adept or, uh, or uh, what do you call it, uh, civil enough. But if I found myself in that seat, um, I am definitely not going to suggest that I know uh, that I would do one thing over another. The older I get, the more I realize how complex, just how complex all of this stuff is. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's certainly complex. And the, you know what that, what is that? I think people attribute it to Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if it's actually him, but the idea that uh, any man can stand adversity. If you want to test their character, give them power. And I think... I think you see that, and to your point about the Illuminati thing, um, it's just people acting selfishly on a grand scale tend to ha- tend tends to sorry result in negative consequences for everybody else. And I feel like the whole idea of a global cabal of reptiles who are set on destroying human beings is just kind of a control fantasy. You know, the idea that okay, well. It's not random. It's a purposeful, malicious group of people doing it as opposed to all these unconnected people doing bad things selfishly and that just results in this world where things get messed up. It's a lot more comforting to think that there's like one group of people that you can blame it on reliably as opposed to the fact that everyone contributes to it, uh, especially people with power, uh, but then they're not connected. They're decentralized. Yeah, I... um... I don't know. I think nobody wants to admit that they are capable of what they hate the most. But, uh, well, okay. So, I mean, I think that there are ways to relate, not just photography, but arts and conversation and philosophy to this. But um, maybe I, I need to ask you this, uh, you know, about your history, your um, focus on your culture. And, uh, you know, topically, the only thing I've heard of and read about the... Uh, I guess you want me to pronounce it Uyghur or Uyghur um, issue in China is that it's a genocide, essentially, that concentration camps and uh, appropriation of lands, et cetera. Uh, you know, this colonial idea, especially with the communist Chinese, it's a, I mean, I don't even, I don't even call them communists anymore. It's just China. Uh, 
it's it's its own sort of political entity um but i don't know much uh, obviously i don't know much about the region i've uh, had a friend who is Hakka, so I understand, you know, the borders between Eurasia, India, China. And I am loosely aware, for example, that China is an amalgam of, you know, hundred more than a hundred different cultures. But maybe you could give me an idea of uh, just briefly, as brief as possible, I suppose, of, uh, yeah, where your relationship to all of that lies. Sure. Um, so I am Uyghur and... I'm from a place I was born in, a place that is right now it's known as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, um, but most Uyghurs will call it East Turkestan, and that is the the name of the homeland that was created uh, and annexed by China in 1949. And so East Turkestan is, was, at least now it is, I think 45 Uyghur, 55 Han Chinese, but it was a Uyghur majority land and there were a lot of other Turkic groups. Um, Uyghurs are a Turkic people, so we share more in our culture and language with other Turkic groups like um, the Kazakhs from Kazakhstan, the Azeris from Azerbaijan, and Turks from Turkey. And so that entire kind of area of Central Asia, we have a lot more in common with them than we do with East Asians or or China. Uh, and so basically what has happened in the last 70 years is a form of colonialism where China has introduced immigration policies to support Han Chinese migration into East Turkestan, resulting in a uh, lower Uyghur population, as well as taking resources out of East Turkestan and reducing opportunities available for the Uyghurs. Uh, and this has always been going on. It's always been this unfair allocation of resources and opportunity. And, and that's what colonialism is. It's, it's extracting the resources and wealth of an area for the benefit of the home people. Um, recently, it's taken a much more dramatic turn with over a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, re-education camps, detainment facilities, prisons, um, for various trumped up charges that are small enough from having a beard uh, wearing our cultural hat or going to a mosque to pray. And Uyghurs are a majority Muslim group. Uh, although our roots were, I believe, Tengrist shaman. And I'm sure that there are some groups who still practice that, uh, but the majority is Muslim. And so what, what we're seeing here is basically a full-on genocide. I mean, a lot of people like to argue the differences between cultural genocides and actual, and that's in quotations, genocides. Um, but it has easily crossed that threshold for anybody when China itself admitted that the population of Uyghurs has reduced by a third since 20, I want to say 2013. Um, and we are not a very populous group to begin with. If you believe China's official census records were about 12 million, I believe. Um, and so reduction of births by a third is an insane amount. And it really does point to a theory and a policy that Uyghur births are being suppressed through means of birth control, abortion, contraceptives that are mandatory, um, not, not a choice, uh, and the removal of Uyghurs from their lands. And so it's, it's this progressive situation where it went from 
a colonialist society that was extracting resources and reducing opportunities for Uyghurs to now a full-blown genocide to remove them or assimilate them by force as fast as possible. And um, that's kind of a really high-level, broad-strokes overview of what's happening to Uyghurs right now. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's crazy. First, the parallels, of course, to the First Nations people in North America. This report's coming out of... Uh, what is it? Uh, I saw a headline that in the ICE uh, detention camps in the States, there's like forced uh, hysterectomies and shit. I mean, the idea of a colonial mindset that a ruling power out of the authority of their own power, I mean, it's so arbitrary, um, can make cultural and human decisions about other human beings. Like, uh, that's uh, that's... That's something, man. That's not a good. Uh, that's not a good space that we exist in. Exactly, and uh, you'll 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 hear reports. Um, and most recently, there was one by the president or the premier of China, Xi Jinping, and he was saying that oh, the policies in Xinjiang are making everyone in Xinjiang happy. And um, wow, you know, it's uh, you see propaganda every day about the happy Uyghurs in Xinjiang and they post videos of people smiling and dancing and eating. And it not only is it blatant propaganda and just a straight up lie, but it's so condescending about how they view Uyghurs that like, oh, we're just a, a happy people, a simple people who only eat and dance and live for the simple pleasures of life. And so it's, it is, uh, it gets on my nerves and it's this weird colonial paternalism that exists um, not not only in China, of course, we we see it here, and it's something that uh, it's it's just uh, irritating to me. It's frustrating. Um, and not to delve too deeply into this, because this is not technically a political podcast. But yeah, I don't um, want to get, I didn't want to <laughs> flood it for an hour of of this. Well, so. Maybe it should be. I don't know. I mean, it, what is it? Is it a religious attack? I mean, culture is one thing, but uh, is it because of the sort of uh, stereotype of that or are there natural resources or is there economy at stake like what is it about your people um and where they live that seems to be the most contentious thing or is this literally just i mean you know uh, my parents are korean so learning more about uh you know japanese colonialism in the uh, late 19th century leading into world war ii uh you know for whatever definitions of political power military might and money uh, there's a deep deep just simple hate that underlines the whole thing but uh, um, so this this is a difficult to ask since you have uh, you know stake in it and uh, there's gonna be a bias but I mean what what is this all for why is this happening well I would definitely say it's not purely religious um, and in fact religion is, is being used as a cover and one of the reasons why China is able to get away with that so easily is because of the Western um, war on terror that has branded Islam and Muslims as potential terrorists all across the globe. And China has taken full advantage of that in order to portray Uyghurs as all terrorists and all potential extremists, even going so far as to abuse the international police system, Interpol, to make sure that Uyghur activists across the world weren't able to travel and had the possibility of being extradited to China 
um, which is which is insane and all overlooked because of this war on terror. People were willing to overlook these gross human rights violations because they wanted to catch the bad guys and not realizing the, the bad guys were the ones abusing the system. Uh, it's, it's definitely a cover. I would say the biggest issues are economic and cultural. Um, economic because China is launching a trillion dollar project called the Belt and Road Initiative. And what it is, is this huge project to connect trade routes all around the world to China. And one of the major trade routes goes through East Turkestan. Um, I think we all know about the Silk Road and the Silk Road is actually part of East Turkestan and it cut through major Uyghur cities and towns. And they're basically calling this the new Silk Road. Uh, and that's kind of why they're starting to crack down on Uyghurs. Uh, sorry, I will retract the word crack down because a crackdown is installing a curfew and limiting interactions between people. What they're doing straight up is genocide. They're getting rid of Uyghurs for the economic benefits that it provides. Uh, East Turkestan is rich in natural resources too. And so they want their they want to be able to extract that. And the second main reason I would say is cultural. Uyghurs are a distinct cultural and ethnic identity that is different from uh, the Han Chinese majority. And I think the China is filled with ethnic minorities, hundreds of them. But for the most part, they've all met, they've all merged, assimilated, and identify as Chinese for the most part. I will not say that every ethnic minority or group has assimilated and has accepted that term. Um, but Uyghurs don't. And most Turkic groups probably don't identify as Chinese in East Turkestan. And so that's another problem. If you want a harmonious state, then you need a harmonious people. And a harmonious people in the eyes of the Communist Chinese Party is one people, not two different people. And so another big reason is control. And you can't, you can't control them if they're different from you, is the reasoning that they're going with. So that's, those are the two big reasons, economic and um, the social, cultural aspects of it. It's such a fascinating, uh, fascinating reflection parallel to, I mean, you, uh, not to minimize, it, it's obviously such a brutal experience, but uh, I, I just can't help but think, I mean, never mind even politics in North America, I, just how individuals treat each other. Um, there are echoes and shades of that uh, that can be present in anybody's uh, thing once they have the dysfunction of believing they can control something. Um but then we'll we'll ramp off into spirituality, and I'll be the one uh, who can't uh, who just loses his way. I <laughs> I'll uh, I'll go on forever on that stuff. But okay, well, just to to turn it a little bit, uh, like how did you come to Calgary then? And um, yeah, and just kind of describe to me, kind of growing up with this identity here. Um, I do kind of want to uh, sort of direct this maybe into. Uh, both photography or the expression of art and, and your career in a creative sense, um, you know, is there a brief sort of timeline on how you arrive and why Calgary of all places <laughs> and uh, your experience of, uh, of growing up here? Uh, I, I'm, I'm presuming, I mean, I actually don't know uh, where you grew up. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I moved around a decent amount until I came to Calgary uh, maybe about slightly over 12 years ago. Um, and this is kind of where... I've made my home since. 
um, ever since leaving China, uh, I spent some time, we spent some time living in Istanbul. And uh, I should mention when I say we, I was a very small child at this time. So none of, none of the choices that are being made were my choices to make. I didn't choose to come to Calgary or anything. I was, I was brought here because my family was moving, looking for better opportunities for themselves. And that's how we ended up in Calgary. We came here during the whole oil rush. And my parents had recently graduated, found some jobs here and established their lives in Calgary. And so that's where I came to as well. Uh, before that, it was in Ontario and various places. And when we first came to Canada, we actually started off in Montreal. Uh, so we've kind of slowly made our way westward until we finally arrived in Cowtown. Uh, and I've been here for the last 12 years. And I would definitely consider this place m my home more so than the other places I've lived. Um, mainly because I've spent the most amount of time here and made the most amount of connections here. I have great relationships here. And, um, and I would say that's kind of crucial if you want to establish a home base for yourself. And that's what I've done here. And reflecting sort of on the, you know, uh, political, racial stuff, uh, you know, I, I'm from Toronto and I've been here about eight years. Um, so there, there are some differences coming from something a little bit more multicultural and more urbanized uh, than, and then coming here. But uh, growing up here in a more formative sense, um, do you think, is there, is there something about being in Calgary that's helped or uh, that's directed you to look back at your cultural heritage? Or is this sort of a familial thing where um, it's part of the language and rhetoric of your family to connect with what's happening back at home? Uh, it sounds like, uh, at least for you, you've been out uh, wandering the world since you were a child. So um, you have a very strong connection uh, to what's happening back um, uh, back home. So, you know, what, uh, what, do you think, what do you think that comes from? That's um, a really good question. And I've thought about that for quite a while. And I think it, I've come to the maybe wrong conclusion that one of the reasons why it's so important to me now is I've on some level connect, reconnected with being Uyghur. Um, it wasn't something that I really cared about or thought about or even liked growing up. In fact, I found it kind of a nuisance when people are like, oh, uh, where are you from? And I explain, oh, I'm Uyghur from East Turkestan. And they're like, oh, where's that? And then I dive into a 15-minute talk about where I'm from and who I am and why haven't you ever heard of us. Um, now, of course, I really am grateful for that opportunity because it's a chance to educate. But before, I, I didn't see it that way. I saw it as kind of annoying. I didn't want to do this. So, you know, I kind of let that aspect of identity go or just put it on the back burner. And... What's been happening very recently has kind of, um, it's kind of allowed me to reconnect. And part of that is I visited East Turkestan two times in my life. Once when I was eight and the other when I was about 18, 19. And in 2015, the last time I went, I was very ungrateful for the chance to be there. And looking back, I wish I would have done a lot of things differently, connected more with my relatives, my grandparents, spent more time with them and, and really made an effort. Um, I didn't because I was upset that my summer had been taken away from me because I wanted to be 
in Calgary with my friends. And so I was a little, um, I was being a brat, basically, an 18 year old brat. And now that I don't have that opportunity anymore, I can't, I definitely can't go. And even if they gave us a visa and said, oh, feel free to come, I, uh, I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. And it wouldn't be the same because uh, my, my grandfather uh, passed away last, last year. And that's, that's just something I won't be able to get back. And so I've made a stronger effort to connect with that Uyghur identity and be more mindful of what it means to me. And I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it would have happened if all this happening to the Uyghurs didn't happen. You know, I, I think I would have maybe just gone on and felt pretty, pretty assimilated, you know, a Canadian. Oh, I'm Uyghur, but I'm mostly Canadian. And now it's a, it's a much more complex and different identity, I would say. It's, it's interesting. I, um, I think you're more mature than I, I definitely was. I mean, I, I'm kind of experienced what you're talking about now in my forties, which is, I mean, we don't, you know, aside from the, uh, uh silly spoofs of North Korea, I mean, South Korea is a, uh, very, uh, at least in a Westernized successful and developed nation. But, um, I also went to Korea when I was 19, um, and I have had a great sort of, a building resentment of not being able to be Canadian or Korean. So, you know, I was born in Toronto. Um, when people hear my voice, they probably might assume that I'm a white guy. I, um, I you know, grew up in an area like Toronto is a little bit more multicultural, but, um, you know, it's hard to identify with anything other than that. But when I went to Korea, it was interesting because the Korean people immediately knew I'm not from Korea. And so, you get kind of a, a subtle push from both sides. Uh, but now that I'm older, I've suddenly found myself looking up, uh, researching historical things that have happened in Korea, that uh, reading books written by Korean authors, it's, it's the strangest thing. And um, I, personally, I think living in Calgary and kind of visual, especially being a visual person, visually confronting how much of a minority I am, at least here in Toronto, I can hide, you know, in the uh, 60% of multicultural sort of cultures that amalg, you know, that, that amass in Toronto, but here um, it stands out a bit. And there's been uh, a couple of racial encounters and things where I've uh, uh, come to question my position, you know, anywhere. And uh, it just makes me wonder for you, I mean, obviously the uh, much more dramatic and brutal reality um, that the Uyghur uh, or Uyghur uh, population is going through right now um, is, I mean, that's a huge polarizing force, but it, it is, it's a strange thing. I think um, either being first or second or third generation, uh, presumably immigrant, uh, although that's kind of a scary catch-all word lately, uh, uh, to find some kind of uh, ground to stand on. Definitely, definitely. The third culture kid is real and they are dealing with the expectations, demands, and criticisms that each of their cultures have to offer as opposed to just one. Um, and I mean, like it, how, how I feel isn't unique. I mean, you, you expressed it yourself, how you felt. And I'm sure that every first or second generation immigrant 
feels the same way, you know? Um, and I, I think that kids or uh, if you came here when you were younger, as opposed to old, much older, um, it is a lot more complex. You're still figuring out who you are and molding your identity. And all of a sudden you've introduced this second factor that is hugely complex, just as complex as the first one. And now you have to navigate through that as well. So yeah, I mean, third culture kids are real and Im- kids of immigrants are stuck in this spot where they have to figure it out. And sometimes it can feel like they're the only ones, you know, but it's certainly not a, a unique feeling, but it is a tough one. Uh, when I was in Toronto last, you know, my parents and I didn't, didn't grow up with the most open dialogue, we'll put it, uh, but I, I've been making my own um, amends really to try to rebuild that. And um, when I was, my dad and I were driving um, in Christmas in Toronto and he told me, it was fascinating, he said, uh, you know, Korea was still a third world country. He came in 1972, so it's not the Korea we know today. It was still under a military, uh, I mean, really a dictatorship and... Um, yeah, you know they were fighting. So when he came, he said Korean people were not really viewed as human beings yet. So his generation was uh, the first role for them. He said, uh, "I mean, I have to paraphrase because I don't have a very good memory, but something along the lines of every immigrant story, which is, you got to work harder, uh, be more present, and smile all the time until people start thinking of you as a person." But I think what shocked me is he said the the harder part is our generation because we have to continue doing that um, because we aren't established yet either. And I think it was shocking for me because I was born here, you know. But I think he sees, um, yeah, he sees it, that it's not there yet, right? Um, Whatever it is, I don't know what, (laughs) if it's valuable to be assimilated that way. I mean, you brought up a great... uh, you know, observation about, let's say, China and uh, whether having one people and being able to identify, you know, whatever, 1.4 billion people as capital CH Chinese, is that good or bad? I mean, who knows? Uh, um, there, there's a broader debate uh, about that. But it is it is an interesting experience. Um, and one, I mean, I have to ask, I mean, is do you think there's a relationship there that brings you to creative projects instead of becoming, you know, an accountant? I mean, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of creative accounting too, but... Uh... It's actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because my dad is an accountant and he owns a small firm. And when I first went into school, he asked, oh, do you want to do accounting? And then you can take over. And I said, I just, you know, I'm not really interested in accounting at all. I am much more interested in creative endeavors. And and that, it wasn't really an argument. He, he wanted me to do what was, what I wanted there. But it's funny that you, it's just funny you mentioned accounting. Because that is actually a specific choice that I've had to deal with, accounting versus something else. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure. That's a really good question. I would say it, it definitely has had an effect on how I view the world. I don't know if it's affected me in an artistic sense. And I, I hesitate to call what I do art. Um, but with, with my view point, my perspective on the world, it, uh, what I've gone through and how I was raised and the whole third culture kid thing, it, ha- it really has influenced and informed my worldview. And I see everything in a much different lens than maybe I did 10 years ago. So there, there's that. And I'm sure it crosses over into stuff that I do, um, but it, I can't point to a specific thing, if that makes well, sense. Of course. And I think, uh, yeah, maybe... 
I probably shouldn't have asked it in such a reductionist way <laughs> as though, you know, it's kind of like a an A-B question where, you know, because of A, you are now B. I, I just think maybe I was getting at, uh, yeah, what you expressed that um, that these things do affect us. And I, and I wonder, just as a message, if people need to be reminded that um, that all, especially with people who do creative things, whatever's happening around us definitely affects our thinking. Well, I, you know, just to, again, to twist a little more into the art stuff, you know, I met you through the magazine and photography. Um, you know, we didn't really, it's not like we hang out anything, but we, were, but, uh, we had some nice email exchanges and, and I like your work, but uh, where does photography come in, podcasting, these conversations, um, you know, discovering that you are uh, pushing very hard on this sort of uh, um, eager issue. Um, you know, how does this all begin? When, like, when, when do you start doing photography? When do you start expressing and sharing um, images or these concepts or conversations with other people? I started photography when I was 16. And the only reason I did it is because my, uh, my mom said that I was taking bad photos. And so the, the entire, the sole purpose of my photographic uh, ability and journey is to say, you were wrong, mom. That's it. <laughs> um, and I just, I found that uh, as I was learning, and I started off learning by watching um, Carl Taylor's photography videos. And from there, I, I started watching more videos, practicing more. And I really got a, a liking to it. I, I started really enjoying what I was doing. And then I asked my parents to buy me a DSLR. And back then, we weren't exactly financially solid. We were, I mean, it wasn't terrible or anything, but an $800 DSLR was kind of a big ask. So it took a while. And I, I asked my grandmother, I asked my grandfather to pitch in. I pitched in. And eventually I picked up a D3000 and from there it kind of just went even more. I, I, I dived into that hobby. I photographed everything and everyone. I started doing shoots with friends just, just, to, just to learn how to take good photos. And a family friend, kind of an uncle, bought me a 50 millimeter lens. And that's really where I started enjoying portrait photography because it was just such a different world compared to using uh, like a wide angle lens. And I started learning the diff I started learning the differences between uh, prime and zoom variable versus fixed aperture and all these things. And I just started taking it really seriously and really trying to learn it not only as a, a hobby, but as a discipline. And then I kind of backed off from that a little bit. And I've recently rediscovered a joy for photography through film. Um, not just film, but I've, after doing a bunch of gigs or volunteering to do photography for events and for headshots and stuff, I started to get sick of my camera, just looking at the, the thing. And so I bought a $40 film camera and luckily it turned out to be in working condition. And I rediscovered that kind of passion I had when I was 16. And I've, I've really enjoyed film photography. Um, and with the other stuff, the podcasting and whatnot, I feel like I've always been a very opinionated person and not too afraid to tell people what I think. And I made 
vlogs when I was in high school and they were terrible. I've scrubbed them from the internet so no one can ever find them again. Oh, they're there uh, somewhere, man. We'll find I'm them. Sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they are. But <laughs> but if uh, if you're not looking hard enough, you will never find it. So I'm all right with that at this point. They're, they're embarrassing, but they're not incriminating. Um, unless the charges for from the fashion police. I did not know how to dress back then. Um, but that, that's something else entirely. And this podcast that um, I, I host, Tarim Talks, really came after some people approached me. Um, and Or, man, I don't remember the full... Was it, it was an audition. People from the Tarim Network wanted to make a podcast and they were looking for a host. And I knew the creators of the Tarim Network. So I sent in a simple voice clip of me asking questions and whatnot. And they asked me to do it. And I've been doing it since. And I've really enjoyed taking on that role as a podcast host, as an interviewer. Um, and I got to admit, I do feel a lot more comfortable on your side of the table, David, as opposed to, to mine. Um, it's, it's a lot of, to me, it's a lot of fun because I get to talk to people who have such interesting viewpoints and perspectives and an education and things that I could not possibly dream of doing. And that alone makes it worth it. And then the fact that I'm sharing these accomplishment, accomplishments and successes of other Uyghurs is just, is just icing on the cake for me because it's a way for us to tell the world Uyghurs are not just this people that are victims. We're not just victims. We are complex and we do things that are more than just activism and being a political entity. Uh, so that's kind of what I enjoy about that. I, um, I was just thinking about how, you know, sort of a bias in language that we think of the word creative as this picture of somebody in a frock covered in, you know, oil paints or something. But uh, I think at its root, the idea in my mind of the word creative is to, um, you know, create something to build on um, a theme or a thought, and at least with you, other than you know, you have a great uh, you have a great radio podcast voice, Bob. But uh, well, thank you. There is an underlying thing where, um, and I think this is a um, you know a political thing too, where you are wanting to ask questions instead of simply just settling for answers. It's I think number one, the fundamental approach for interviewing. Um, the worst interviewers are the ones that uh, don't want to hear what their interviewees have anything to say. Um, but also, I think in photography and your uh, sort of political research, in your political positions, uh, your opinions. I mean, there's there's still a question there, which I think is fascinating. Um, you know, you pick up a camera, you. You uh, try different things. You pick up a film. You know, that that's not a normal course, as I'm finding, uh, unless you're a photographer. Um, and it is fascinating to hear that from you. And uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a creative thing that you're doing. Hmm. Thank creative you, yeah. Endeavor. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm uh, just trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to talk to you about. I, this is great. I, um, I will say, you know, speaking to you, I... I'm inspired to find stories like this instead of feeling a little bit pigeonholed into, you know, finding a painter that wants to talk about painting. Uh, I think those are valuable conversations in and of themselves, but. Yeah. Um, if you're going for something that's more of just talking about a person's perspective 
and viewpoint, then I think it's fair to ask anyone anything. Um, but if you're aiming for, you know, hard facts, then asking me for a, an economic analysis of the next two years, you know, not, not the greatest thing, but if you wanted to ask, if you wanted to just sit down and kind of have a heart to heart, which I feel kind of is what you're doing right now. And I think that you're good at it. Uh, just a more casual format. People let their guard down. You ask them open-ended questions and just listen to their responses. I think that that's a great idea and you have definitely room to explore. Don't feel like because you started off as a podcast that interviews artists, that that's all you can do, right? Yeah. Well, I also believe in my heart that artists and creatives are the intellectuals we're missing. Uh, You know, I've become a little jaded about people who brand themselves, you know, like political advisors or economists and all this stuff. uh, Because I think um, when you over over certify you end up i think feels like they stop asking questions whereas creative people like i i, I have this assumption bubber that uh, if i speak to you another year uh, this conversation will have evolved instead of you standing on the talking points of today and granted the situation in china is probably not going to get any better anytime soon um which uh, fucking sucks and is tragic but um yeah i, I do like talking to folks like you because uh you know, it sounds like you're thinking about something instead of just having uh, having some writing points to give me, which is great. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully there are thoughts in my head. Sometimes I can't tell. You know, some days you wake up and you're just thinking, head empty, no thoughts. If you leave a meeting and you don't remember uh, what was actually said, you just remember a feeling, that's probably the, the best kind of meeting to have participated in. And this is uh, what I, to hearken back, yeah. Uh, if we get onto a spiritual discussion, and then I will have too many opinions uh, from my recent uh, trying to get myself right. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I'm just happy that uh, I got to talk to you about this. Uh, I I, uh, I think if I can find things that you're passionate about, uh, there's great value in that. People need to hear it, regardless what their opinion is politically. People need just need to see that people have other people have passion, and uh, that's great. Yeah, I completely agree, but. Um, thank you for asking me to be on and having me on. Um, I see that we've been recording for an hour, but honestly, it doesn't feel like it. You know, it just feels like we've been talking for 15 minutes. Just, uh, well, maybe that's just because I've been doing all the talking. But in, in any case, this was a blast. And I really, I did enjoy talking to you and answering your questions. Yeah, and um, same the other way. I feel like this is how I felt when we met uh, at the coffee shop like more than two years ago, but... Uh... Yeah, I, you know, you're a good guy, Bubber, and I, I hope, um, I'm glad to hear that project uh, with the podcast is going well, and uh, I hope to keep seeing your images somewhere. I, I have final thought, I, I, on my other podcast, I spoke to Twinkle, she's from India, and she forward, she has this project of trying to go back to, to lend her lens to all the stuff that's going on in India right now, and she forwarded me um, uh, a woman who's sort of a prominent uh, documentarian uh, photographer in India doing the same thing. But um, have you thought about finding a way to go back with, let's say, your camera or your microphone? Um, you know, That's uh, a really risky endeavor. And I can't say I haven't thought about it, but I can't say that I've seriously considered it. Um, I know there are photographers who have been around in East Turkestan and they've been able to take photos, but 
they're always watched and it's very tightly regulated. And if they, if you take a photo of something they don't want you to take a photo of, excuse me, they'll, they'll get rid of the photo. Um, and it's doubly dangerous for me uh, just because I am Uyghur and I've made a lot of loud statements about it. Um, I could, I could imagine that me getting in through a legal channel would be impossible, if not extremely, extremely difficult. And then there's always the risk of just disappearing when I had enter, which is not an unheard of thing for Uyghurs coming from different countries. Uh, I think it paints, it paints a great picture, a dark one, but um, yeah, it's totalitarian regimes. I, uh, I don't know. There's a photographer. So on that? Sorry. Uh, Pat Wack, yeah. if you on Instagram, Pat Wack, and he actually did an entire um, photo documentary on Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, and it was really good. And so, if you want to see a photograph, a photographer's works on modern day Uyghurs in modern day East Turkestan, I'll bet, of course, a sanitized version of it. Although he acknowledges that it is sanitized, um, check out Pat Wack. I mean, he's Patrick. Patrick Wack, I think, and um, he's a I think he's a German photographer, but he's very good, and his work was really good. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I'll leave you to a dinner. It's past six, man. Shit. And uh, I'll go and find nourishment as well. But uh, yeah, I hope we can do this in person soon. It's just nice catching up with you, man. Yeah, it was great catching up with you. And uh, if you ever want to want to have me back on in an in person session or anything, or obviously not even just the podcast, if you just want to sit down and talk, I'm definitely willing to do that. Um, this, was, this was fantastic. What's the best meal you've ever had? Oh boy, that, I don't even know why it's so hard for me to think because I immediately started flashing to several meals that I've had. Um, one of, I guess, some of the best food that I've had outside of my mom's cooking is, um, in Turkey or back in my hometown. Um, you know what? So, some A memorable meal, I'll say, maybe instead of the best, because uh, I can't think of the best, is we were on the road in East Turkestan. It's now known as Xinjiang. Uh, and we were on the road and we stopped by this town. And I don't remember the name of the town, but my dad and my uncle were with me and they wanted to stop by and get some uh, barbecue, some kebab. And one of the specialties of this place was they use these, these sticks from a, from, a brand, from a branch, which comes from a tree in the middle of the Teklamakan desert. Um, and it's just, it only grows there and it's got a very special taste, smell, and um, texture to it, the, the, the wood itself. So they make skewers out of it and then they cook the kebab on it. And we went to this little uh, kebab house, basically, on the off the side of the road. And there's probably 50 or 60 people all sitting down. And they've got this huge, huge grill. And it's just burning wood, um, the same wood that they use the skewers for. And they're just cooking rows, hundreds of skewers of kebabs. And uh, that, that, to me, was a really interesting one because it was a unique, a unique, town specialty or a unique area specialty that you really you can't get anywhere else because of the the way that it's made and what it's made with it's amazing i'm glad i asked that question 
fate, as fate would have it, <laughs> you have a great story. I'm just, I'm trying to think about, um, yeah, like the cultural idea of uh, having wood that, you know, you know will have an aroma and a taste and inflecting that uh, onto a meal you're having. It's, it's so cool. Yeah, I'm glad I remembered. Um, and the reason I remembered is just a couple weeks ago, my dad had been, we were talking about that day and he mentioned how that, that wood, that branch, uh, it's been shown to have some sort of medicinal properties inside of it. And my first thought was, of course, we, like instead of using it for the medicinal purposes, we went ahead and made uh, like a barbecue out of it. It's just such a very Uyghur thing to me. <laughs> Human actually sounds more. <laughs> Food over medicine. Oh, yeah, man. Well, you could also argue, depending on where you stand on the Eastern-Western uh, philosophy or culture spectrum, that uh, food and medicine should be more intertwined. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, perhaps. that's true. <clears throat> um, all right, that was, well, that's great, Lita. I'm, I'm totally fucking keeping that in our interview. That's great. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, what's an opinion you might... Uh, what's an opinion you have that might surprise people or be otherwise unpopular? Oh boy. <laughs> oh, that that's that is um, one one hell of a question, David. Yes. Um, I don't. I can't think of anything right now, and maybe it's just because I express most of my views, and then people either take them in stride or we don't really click and then we don't continue talking and therefore I don't get to ever hear whether or not it's a controversial or unpopular view. Um, as a, as a less controversial or less head turning one, I think pineapple on pizza is fine, but I pretend like it's not. Oh, I don't. You, what do you mean you pretend that it's not? <laughs> well, so, you know, there's that whole argument about whether pineapple on pizza is blasphemy or whatever. I actually, I don't mind it, but I find it to be a lot of fun to take a very strong stance on a really trivial matter like that. Uh, so I pretend, or not pretend, but I, I, I will argue that it is blasphemous on pizza, just for fun. Just because it, it, it starts like a, an argument that won't shatter friendships and ruin lives. Well, it depends who you talk to. I... That's true. Yeah. Some people take it seriously. Here's a quick word from another of our sponsors. This episode of My Viewfinder is brought to you by The Shared Mic. Can you remember the last time you spoke to someone from a totally different generation who wasn't a member of your family? There's so much we can learn from listening to people both younger and older than ourselves. The Shared Mic Conversations for the Ages is a unique interview format intergenerational podcast by age-friendly Edmonton bringing together Edmontonians of different ages and backgrounds to discuss topics that matter to them. Season 2 launches October 5th and features conversations about cultivating friendships, building careers, exploring virtual theater, volunteerism, and much, much more. Find The Shared Mic on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Shared Mic is brought to you by the Edmonton Seniors Coordinating Council and the City of Edmonton.